Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Oh, Hilde, this is a show that has so much importance and so much impact with a great panel. We're calling this The Power of Scans, Lung Cancer Screening Matters. And joining Hilde today, three amazing guests. Dr. Francine Jacobson, founding director of lung cancer screening for Brigham and Women's Healthcare and an associate professor of radiology at Harvard Medical School. We also have Dr. Dan Cadigan, a primary care physician in Northwestern Ohio for many years, a stage four lung cancer survivor. He's been actively involved in lung cancer programs and advocacy, including the Department of Defense Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program, the Department of Veterans Affairs National Lung Cancer Screening Meetings, and the National Lung Cancer Roundtable of the American Cancer Society. Rounding out our terrific panel is Dusty Donaldson, who now is living a life of advocacy. She's been 17 years cancer-free and has made making lung cancer patient advocacy her full-time job. Hilde, it's a great conversation coming up. So important. Take it away. Welcome, everybody. Today is a very special day. We are going to talk to three incredibly delightful guests, and our topic this day is the power of scans. Lung cancer screening matters. And why does it matter? That's part of what we want to figure out. Why would it matter to anyone? So we're going to start off today with Francine Jacobson, who is a thoracic radiologist. And I wanted to start off asking you just a little background. Um, We have all kinds of listeners. We have um, patients, we have patient advocates, we have the general population and people who don't know much about CT scans at all. So what the heck is a CT scan? A CT scan is familiar to people for imaging a variety of parts of your body. As far as having a lung cancer screening or other chest CT, if you don't have any metal in your clothing, you don't even have to take off your clothes. It's a very quick exam when it's done without any contrast material. You lie on the couch of the uh, scanner, and it's not very claustrophobic because it's a rather open uh, donut around you when you're slid into it. The text will give you cues for breathing, and you'll hold your breath for probably 10 to 20 seconds. It's a very easy test, and they'll check the images, and door-to-door, approximately 15 minutes, all told. What else would you like to know about the experience of having this type of CT scan? So suppose somebody comes in and says, well, why do I need that rather than an x-ray? I know I've been coughing or maybe some symptom. Why would I want that, not the x-ray? That's an excellent question. And a lot of times patients will have had a chest x-ray. A chest x-ray can miss even the significant size lung cancer due to the location of it. And a lot of that has to do with overlying bones, which are then separated in the CT scan. Um, The CT scan will also show early lung cancer that is so subtle and not dense enough 
to be recognized on a chest X-ray. And that's where we make a great difference in getting patients treatment early to be more effective. The few times that I've looked at any kind of imaging, and I have seen my own uh, CT scans, I think, how the heck does anybody figure out what's going on here? As a radiologist, what's that like sitting and uh, trying to scan and make sure you don't miss anything? There's so many like blobs and bloobs and it's black, white and gray and dots and spots. How do, how do you figure this out? For, to begin with, the medical education that we all receive, I had an entire year of gross anatomy. I had a year of histology and embryology for half a year so that the anatomy and how it develops and how the variations occur are something with which I even came to radiology already knowing. The radiology training is at least five years. And then after that five years of general radiology for all parts of the body, I spent a year studying nothing but the thorax, but the chest, (laughs) the heart, the lungs, and the other organs that happen to be in the neighborhood. And I look at CT scans in a very stylized way. It's a discipline kind of thing that you have to make sure that you have looked at as much as you can. We have done research over many years at how good radiologists are at identifying things. In the era of radiography before CT, we were right 70% of the time. That research has been repeated in CT, and we are right about 70% of the time. So it's very valuable to have partnership with patients and their physicians. So if something doesn't seem right, speak up, because it is possible that when we get more information, sometimes the requisition will say something about a cough for a long period of time. And by the time I see the CT scan, maybe the physician has heard something in a stethoscope that will focus my attention in a different way because we find lung cancer and also chronic lung problems that can be addressed to improve someone's health. So that partnership is something I tremendously encourage and value in my own work. Fabulous. So speaking of primary care physicians, we just happen to have someone with us today, Dan Cardigan, who is a primary care physician. Is that right? Yes, I'm a primary care doctor in Ohio. Right. So so um, Francine is, is bringing up issues about when you send people to be scanned and whether or not... Um, there are disputes or you have discussions with patients. Um, Yeah, where are you on when you think somebody should have a CT scan? I mean, I think the criteria are laid out pretty succinctly right now in terms of who should be scanned for screening. Um, uh, I'd let Francine know that I know enough radiology to be dangerous. I did three (laughs) of the five years of a radiology residency before I became one of the few people that decided it wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't like having a good lifestyle and getting home early. Um, I prefer to have people <laughs> sneeze and cough on me all day. So oh, perfect, um, perfect. So, so I like I say, I, I know enough about CTs, and I've got enough interest in that. But obviously, you know, the amount of training a radiologist has is is so incredibly in depth in terms of defining things. It's interesting, Francine. You mentioned about somebody having a cough when you were talking uh, to Francine, and you know, one of the things with screening is they won't let you have a screen if you have a cough. Um, you have to have no symptoms. 
you know, my rule of thumb is if somebody's coughing, if somebody's more short of breath, then we're generally going to have to do a chest x-ray, knowing that it's not necessarily going to give us the information we need. And if they don't improve, at least we've done that background and we can get a CT scan performed. But I really look at screening for the individual that's considered at risk by the present guidelines, which generally is your 20-pack year or greater smoker. Francine, what were your thoughts? I'd like to add to that, as long as you left off with the 20-pack year or more, it's age 50 to age 80 and have smoked within the last 15 years. I'd really like to get rid of the quit rule, but my concern is also within a screening program, and that's how we perform screening, it's more than just getting a scan. It is no new symptom. If somebody is a longtime smoker and they have a morning cough, but that's their usual cough, that is their best usual health, and we will screen them. You do not have to work at trying to suppress that cough in order to come for the screening CT. The idea is that you're in your best usual state of health. And for a lot of patients who have done a lot of smoking, that includes a significant amount of chronic lung changes, and those are the patients who are at very high risk for developing lung cancer. But doesn't it run a risk of saying, I'm going to wait till your cough is better in order to give you a CT scan, Mrs. Smith? Dan? Yeah, I, I think certainly waiting till the cough is better is not the answer. As Francine says, so many people have a chronic cough. Um, so much of it is in the hands of the insurances, too, unfortunately. Um, I remember in the last few years, I've screened, sent quite a few people for screening. One of my first patients this morning that I've seen already for a shoulder issue said, and I'm leaving here to go get my lung scan screened, screening done today, which was great to hear. Um, I've had issues, uh, as Francine mentions, uh, you know, a chronic cough isn't, you're technically not supposed to have a symptom of lung cancer. And I've had insurances refuse to cover a scan until I talked to them because he said, well, it says on the chart, the patient has COPD. And I'm like, COPD isn't a symptom of lung cancer. Um, but they said there's an existing condition, so they don't consider it screening. Um, so yeah, I think you know you can't just wait till things go away. I think in in the real world of primary care, somebody walks in today and they've been coughing for a few weeks, then um, if they meet the criteria, I would encourage them to screen. If they've got a new cough, you know, I would treat as we go through the process and initially start with the chest x-ray for the cough, not for the screening. And then if they're not, you know, get the ball rolling on having them screen, you know, even if it's next month um, because of their underlying risks. But where so much of it is what we do is at the, the mercy of insurance companies now as well. Uh, I, I'll be back on insurance companies soon. I, as a psychologist, I've decided there should be a new category called insurance-induced stress. And I think <laughs> that would make so much sense for all I of us. I could be your first patient for that. <laughs> exactly. So, but Dan, you joined Dusty and myself. Dusty's coming up in a minute, audience. Don't, don't worry. You're going to meet this wonderful woman in one minute. But um, Dan, you joined Dusty and myself as a lung cancer survivor. So here you are, a physician. You're working with all kinds of patients, you're sending people off for screening for lung cancer. Can you tell us about your own experience with lung cancer? So I'm a non-smoker. Um, I have a family where my dad was a firefighter and had exposures to numerous chemicals over the years. 
Um, he was a heavy smoker for a good 30, 40 years. And, you know, he lived, till we look at how lung cancer hits, he passed away three days short of his 91st birthday with minimal lung disease. Um, I, I developed lung cancer at 46, having never smoked. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of cancer through my family of all sorts, but I had several relatives with lung cancer. I started with a cough and um, just, you know, being a typical physician, I ignored it. Um, and as we got into the spring of 13, um, I had been putting mulch down in my yard and the cough persisted. I ended up with a fever, got my doc to order a chest x-ray, which they suspected was pneumonia. Fever went away. We repeated the chest x-ray after because I developed the fever again a week later. And it again, it looked like persistent pneumonia. And, and my first thought, you know, we're not educated to the non-smoking aspect. Um, right. I know with screening, we're talking about smoking, but I just thought, okay, I've got some weird fungal infection from spreading mulch <laughs> in my yard. So, and, and my hallmark was kind of interesting. I had been coughing for several months and it, whenever I coughed, it tasted like pure seawater. Wow. And when I went to see the pulmonologist and he said, well, that's pretty well an exam question. He said, that's pretty typical of bronchial alveolar cell carcinoma. It's a saltwater sputum. Wow. Um, wow, but, wow, wow. Which they don't really break it down to that type anymore. So when I went for testing, it said, they said, okay, bi I didn't for biopsies. And they said, yeah, you have adenocarcinoma of lung. Um, they thought I was stage one. So I went for surgery. I came out of surgery stage 3B. Um, wow. Because, you know, the other thing I, I would tell any lung cancer patients is that they talk about get your PET scan, make sure your PET scan is fine. I'll tell you if there's anything anywhere else. My cancer barely lit up on a PET scan. Uh -huh. So that's why they thought there was minimal changes early on within a year to progress to stage four. So I'm going on 10 years right now. Um, I've been through four or five lines of treatment if you count surgery, um, sure. you know, still working and doing doing well other than med side effects, but it just kind of goes to show there's, there's such variety of symptoms. Um, and, you know, the smoking risk is what we focus on with screening, but smoking certainly isn't the only risk. You know, the, the old adage that anybody that has lungs can get lung cancer is pretty well true. Absolutely. And, and the other piece that I take from your story is about how important it is to be persistent. So, Dusty, you have quite a story also about lung cancer, and um, I'll get to all the other things, but Dusty and I have known each other for a long time, and I so appreciate everything you do, Dusty. But tell the audience about your own experience with lung cancer. Um, thank you, Hildy, for having me. And uh, yes, we go way back. Um, Hildy and Hildy and I have a lot of fun when we get together at conferences and such. But um, we're very much alike in some ways, Hildy, because uh, your lung cancer was found by a fluke, as was mine. So um, I'm a 17-year early stage lung cancer survivor. And um, my, I had a just a, like a little swollen lymph node in my neck, and that had been going on for maybe, um, you know, eight or nine months. And eventually I went to the doctor and asked him to, you know, check it out at my physical. He couldn't really detect anything. So I went a few weeks later and I just said, just check this out because it would flare up and then recede some. And it wasn't that big of a deal, but 
it was persistent. And so I thought I would be persistent to find out what the heck's going on. And he started a series of imaging and ultimately that um, showed that I had a five centimeter uh, uh, mass in my right lung. So the pulmonologist was actually confident that it was just scar tissue or something. I had, um, I am a person who had quit smoking 26 years before this time. And so I thought I was in the safe zone. And then he said, we can let it be for a year and check it out in a year to see if anything has changed. Or we can, he said, take a poke around down there to see if anything bad's going on. Well, I really, at that point, after talking to him, I, I was assured that I had no cancer in my lungs. And so I thought, but I was in a fast track MBA program and it was really brutal. So I thought I'm going to get this um, bronchoscopy to find out, you know, if there's anything bad going on. But really, so I could take a day off um, of my of work because I was working full time and in a fast track MBA program. And I thought, let me just get this done so I can catch up on some studies. It was the best decision I could have made, even though uh, for the wrong reasons. Everyone was shocked when it came back as as lung cancer. And and Dan, I think I had the same exact type as you. Mm -hmm. um, and my PET scan didn't light up either. But at any rate, I had um, my upper and my middle right lobes removed. And then I had some uh, what they call adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, I have been considered um, cured. I have no evidence of disease. And that has been for 17 years. But Hildy, if I may, I'd just like to say that, I mean, I wish I could take someone like Dan and not have to put them through what they've been through, because trust me, it's not easy going through the surgery and stuff. It is a lot easier now than it used to be because they have these minimally invasive techniques and that, that's wonderful. But I had the good old fashioned thoracotomy. But at any rate, Dan is so... I mean, uh, the primary care provider, that's where the rubber meets the road. And how do we get them to people like Francine? Only through people like Dan and through advocacy. But it, it takes, um, you know, early detection. I tell people it's the, the deadliest kept secret because the patients don't know about it or those at risk don't know about it because the primary care provider is not telling them about it. And we want to see a world filled with People like Hildy and myself, where um, we have been given, we dodged the bullet, essentially. And Dan, well, Dan is, was advanced stage, but people like Dan can really save a lot of lives. People like Hildy and myself, we can spread the word and, and let people know that if you catch it early, you can have a long life, a long, fruitful, happy life. And I'll dedicate my life to advocacy. I've been doing it full time for a number of years now. And it's the most rewarding and fulfilling um, job and calling I could ever do. But um, it, it's it's especially important to be around people like Dan and, um, and Hildy and Francine because we feed off each other, I think, with this energy. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. As thousands of audience members know, Upstage Lung Cancer events, the concerts, are fun, meaningful, inspiring, and memorable. And you should know that we invest in cutting-edge diagnostic research to find lung cancer early and greatly improve on the five-year survival rate. We also bring voice to the fact that young people get lung cancer. They really do. 
Unfortunately, doctors don't know how or why. Proceeds from our concerts support research to help find answers to these questions. Hilde Grossman and her team aim to entertain and inform because the show must go on. Find out how you can help at upstagelungcancer.org. Now back to the podcast, here's Hilde. I wanted to make a point that upstage lung cancer has a pretty much single focus on early detection. And right now we're talking about CT scans, how important they are as an early detection uh, tool. Uh, As we've been talking about, lung cancer doesn't usually present with symptoms until it's an advanced stage. I mean, you know, mine was totally by accident on our website, Upstage Lung Cancer website. I'd go through this long, ridiculous story. If you read it, you'd say, oh, that's just silly. But, you know, ultimately it led to a diagnosis. Um, So Upstage Lung Cancer is, is working very tirelessly to support early detection research in different ways, using breath, using saliva, using urine, using organoids, which no one knows what that is. Go listen to our earlier podcast on, uh, on, on our, our topics uh, uh, and you'll find out. But anyway, we're, we're doing all that work so that people don't have to fight to get a CT scan, don't have to be turned away because, oh, it's just your shoulder that hurts. You were mentioning your patient with a shoulder. I mm-hmm. can't tell you how many people I know who've said, I had this shoulder that was really painful. Nothing in my chest, wasn't coughing, but painful shoulder, and it wound up being lung cancer. So we really want to find something that can help detect this at the earliest possible moment. But um, just to go on, uh, Dusty, just for a moment, you mentioned advocacy. And obviously, both of us took our experience with lung cancer and became patient advocates. It's very interesting to me that it feels like there's almost like a fork in the road for people who have had lung cancer. Some people say, I don't want to talk about this ever again. So don't bother me. Don't reach out to me. Don't, don't do anything. Um, I'm you know, good for you, what you're doing, but I don't want to be involved. And other people say, I know for me, my first thought was like, why me? Not why me did I get it, but why me was I spared? Because I was just calculating when you said 17 years. Mine's, mine's was this month, 16 years. Um, and so, um, you know, I just, I felt like, why me? Why was I spared 16 years ago? Um, the survival rate was, I don't know, it was around 14% or something. It's all the way up to 25%, but we need to keep going. Francine, what were you going to say? I like to make the point that you three are all a very special gift in changing the perception of lung cancer, because it is not a death sentence. We have progressed from the time when the death rate and the diagnostic rate in a given year were so close that we didn't have survivors and we didn't have advocacy. The treatment though really does need to be tailored to the individual patient. And age has a lot to do with that because if you look at the average age in which the whole population is developing lung cancer, it is significantly older than the three of you were when you developed your lung cancer. And if you look at somebody who's 
at the other side of that peak that's about 73 or 74, watching something through the phase where it is not doing anything, we now also have people who will die with lung cancer without dying from lung cancer. It's very important for us to work on what the risks are besides tobacco, which is another take home from this particular podcast for me. I'm very grateful to having been included in this presentation. Dusty, you had a thought a moment ago. I don't know if it's still something you want to continue. I did, but now I forgot what it was. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry. We'll do do a a podcast on senility next. That's all right. (laughs) Dan. Yeah, it's interesting that Francine mentions about the other risk factors. You know, when I send a patient for a CT lung cancer screen, there's a questionnaire that asks if they've had radon exposure, if they've had certain other exposures, is there a family history? And, you know, sitting through the, the National Lung Cancer Roundtable meetings last week, I didn't, I didn't hear where, what we're doing with that data. I mean, that, my goal would be, you know, I did an op-ed a few years ago for the EGFR resistors about lung cancer screening. And then in the, the ulterior motive with screening for any of us with lung cancer is we need to create a bigger pool of survivors. If the majority of people are diagnosed late stage and they don't make it, there's less of a voice clamoring for more research funding, less change. The bigger pool we get, the better. And the way we get a bigger pool of survivors is to find people at an earlier stage. So somewhere that data is there, I would presume in academic in academia, it's being looked at. But you know what I want to see is you have radon in your home, fine, you qualify for screening. You have a family history, you qualify for screening. There's a lot of that data out there right now, but I'm not seeing a lot of that data collected. I'm not seeing the final, you know, where we are with processing that information to determine additional people that are eligible for screening. Jordan, did you have a thought? Just one uh, question to drop in here, and it has to do with Dan's background. It says, according to my bio, that you're a native of Newfoundland in Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, and actually, Hildy raised this question with me earlier, maybe discussing what you know of the Canadian system and whether or not there's stuff we can learn from, from what they're doing up north. For better and for worse. Yeah. <laughs> they're not doing a lot up north for lung cancer screening, unfortunately. Um it's been interesting. I trained in Canada. I grew up there. I moved here in 95. And the Canadian system really is 10 provincial systems. There are basic standards set out by the federal government for each province to cover in terms of health care. But then the majority of that pocket of money comes in the province. So depending on the wealth of a province, they may have better access to care. They may have better access to CT scanners and screening. Um, you know, kind of the akin of what might West Virginia financially be able to offer versus what Texas could offer. And when I I worked the emergency room uh, in Newfoundland for a year or so before I moved to the US, and we had a province of 500,000 people, and this is 1995, we had two CT scanners. Oh my God. And we had limited numbers of CTs we can do. So when I worked ER and you came in and you had struck your head and were knocked unconscious, the hospital I was at was only, a, it was a 350-bed hospital, and it was allowed to do a limited number of scans based on budget. And if I had to make a decision, if I was going to scan your head, not based upon the fact that you were unconscious, you should have your head scanned, but by scanning you, 
somebody that might have been waiting six months for a scan was going to get bumped from the list the next day and put back on a waiting list again because the funding was only for eight to 10 scans per day at that institution. Um, but in terms of the CT lung cancer, so access was one thing. Um, that's improved. But actually, Canada has very few. There's a few pilot programs. When the original data came out talking about uh, the benefits of CT screening, and I was screening people here pre-COVID, um, and you know, increasing numbers now, Canada decided, a few provinces decided to do some pilot projects to say, is the data we already have sufficient for us to want to put a screening program in place? So there, there actually really aren't, uh, as far as I'm aware, maybe Ontario is the only province in Canada that actually has any degree of screening right now, and it's very limited. Um, so unfortunately for those, those smokers at risk in Canada, they're going to get scanned when they have symptoms, and, which is later in the game. You made me think of a topic for a new podcast, which is the politics of cancer, you know, including insurance companies, including hospital systems that require their own doctors to refer within the hospital and not to specialists mm -hmm. outside of the hospital. You know, all of this is now blasting through my, my mind about all the things that need to happen to keep improving. So I, I'm not somebody who just bashes and walks away, but, um, <laughs> but this, you know, to try to keep improving. What do you think, Dusty? Thoughts? Um, I I agree, um, Hildy. Our our survival rate has increased overall for lung cancer uh, significantly in one in one respect. You know, from fifteen percent when we were first diagnosed to twenty five percent now. That's a pretty significant leap in survivorship, uh, and we're hopeful that you know that's the trend that is going to continue that way. However, um, when you and I were diagnosed, we had no idea we would be the lucky ones, if you will. I right. mean, uh, we didn't know. I started this, um, my organization, you started yours, and I'm just thinking, I want every day to count. And I just um, am really amazed that, you know, I can look back now on 17 years, but we just don't know. And we didn't know, but we, we knew how important it was to get the word out about advocacy. And I'd like to go back to just something that uh, Dan said a few minutes ago. And for, you know, you, you've probably already done um, a podcast on radon. And if not, I, I hope you will. But, um, but Dan mentioned radon. And just for folks who might be listening to this podcast, I'd like to mentioned that it is an odorless, uh, invisible, uh, radioactive gas. It's one of the noble gases um, in the periodic chart, just like you got helium as one, that's a lighter than air, radon is heavier than air, and it uh, causes lung cancer. It gets trapped in people's homes and it's easy to check, it's cheap and easy to check, and it's relatively easy to fix a problem with radon if you have it in your house. But it is the number two overall cause of lung cancer and the number one cause of lung cancer in people who never smoke. So I just wanted to mention that and one more thing, Francine was talking about the guidelines for lung cancer screening and uh, the terms that they use according to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is, you know, heavy smoker. And I found in, um, in my circles that most people don't consider themselves a heavy smoker, but oh no, 
My brother is a heavy smoker. He smokes four packs a day. I only smoke three packs a day. And so it's really relative. And although the word long-term is also relative, I think more people can resonate with a long-term smoker. So if you smoke a pack a day for 20 years, you would have a 20-pack year smoking history. And so that would qualify you based on the other risk factors for screening. So, um, and Francine might want to talk a little bit about the, um, if you're a former smoker, uh, what the guidelines are for that. I'm happy to take on the question. I want to frame it in how we got where we are now, because it took treatment for lung cancer. It took the technology maturing of CT and using it over more than a decade with multimodality therapy emerging for radiologists to understand what early lung cancer would typically look like. And the reason why the focus on smoking initially dates back to the National Lung Screening Trial, because we needed to economize in setting up that trial and therefore use only three annual screens. We wanted people who would be likely to, in the decade, get lung cancer. And therefore we picked blindly, we didn't know that perfectly, 55 to 75 as a range. And we wanted them to have enough risk to have a significant number out of 54,000 people who would actually develop lung cancer. I'm very upset that that research design that let us understand lung cancer and open the door for the rest of it is to this day used by the political and CMS and the different organizations to say that we're going to allow it at that level. Then I want to turn around and look at where we're heading in medicine right now. We are on the verge of having so much information that it's difficult for humans to put it together. And this speaks to some of what Dan was looking for, that some of this information is out there. We are working in deep learning models that get called artificial intelligence to further the understanding of what those risks are. Because the risks for lung cancer that also include things like having had a prior pneumonia, um, having uh, other chronic lung disease, diseases. Um, some of them are very significant. Some of them are like under the radar and you barely know about it. But the idea that all these things are smaller risk factors, there's a very good chance that it takes multiple smaller risk factors to equal what we got from tobacco. So I'm grateful to smokers. I get dissed on it at places like the round table because people really want to move beyond that. And I do too. And I think the way we will do that is with this new research and looking at more at also people who are long-term survivors, because we don't understand that much about the difference. What is it? There are, Dan is not the only patient I know of who is living in the decades with stage four lung cancer, which is the highest stage. And most people hear that relative to any cancer and they feel like it is a doomsday sentence. And now it's becoming a chronic disease. Um, and yes, those patients need special surveillance too, because they're at the highest risk of developing another lung cancer. We're going to learn over the next decade, which cancers need to come out 
maybe better and which ones don't. One of the most recent pieces of research that gives me hope is that they have identified a mechanism whereby cells that have received some kind of damage, it might be because the flow in your lung is turbulent in a spot because embryologically it developed a little crooked. You know, some people have ears that stick out, different little asymmetries that could have caused a damage that then there's a switch that can be turned on that allows it down the road to become a lung cancer. Identifying that switch is the first step to find something to reverse that switch. And that's a very time-trusted medical pharmacologic development. You have to understand that piece of biology to go after it at that stage. So I'm still hopeful that someday we will have the elixir. And before we have the elixir, we will have even lower dose CT. So anyone who's 50 years old and worried about getting a CT scan every year for 30 years, by five years from now, the ultra low dose CT will be on the order of a chest X-ray maybe even less. And that is less than flying in an airplane. Uh, so I, uh, I see we are coming to the end of our time today, which I can't believe because uh, we've opened up uh, so much information that I wanna keep going. So I, I am hopeful that this group will return for part two about this because some of the things that have come up for me one is I hope everyone listening hears this information as hopeful, that there is hope for survival, that there is hope for treatment, that there is hope for new diagnostics. So please take away that inspiration. On the other hand, please know that there are barriers uh, that need to be met uh, and jumped over and that um, there still is a lot of work to be done ahead um, I, I really want to think some more together about the whole future of, of, of early detection and treatment, the psychology of diagnosis and treatment. I think this is the right crew to um, talk about this some more. So I want to thank absolutely all three of you, as well as my dear Jordan, my co-host. But thank you, Francine and Dusty and Dan, so much for your input. And I hope all of the listeners will say, I can't wait for the next podcast to come. So thank you so much. Uh, be well, everybody listening, and we'll talk to you soon. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.